On episode 47 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss Eclipse, plugin architectures, sketching mockups, and optimizations that don't actually optimize from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hey, I have a whole new audio set up this week. Oh, good. Once again, I have like rearranged all the mixers and everything. So at the end of this, we'll have a recording, hopefully. Yeah. First of all, that Adderall device, which I got for um, uh, for our live podcast last week for Mix, yeah, that yeah. turned out to be just really, truly awesome. Much better than all this other gear I have here. I see. So, and it, it records kind of more reliably. It's just, I don't know, it's just, it's solid. So I've, I've plugged that in as, um, uh, as our main thingamajiggy, and that got rid of two of the mixers and one of the preamps. Awesome. So this simplifies your config? Yeah. Um, and uh, what, what else is new? You, you gave a speech with uh, Clay Shirky? I did. In fact, I just drove back. So it was for EclipseCon. Uh-huh. It was actually the keynote at EclipseCon. Right. EclipseCon, from what I can tell, is about fourteen hundred people. Wow, so it's a good size. It's a good size conference. Yeah, that was. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's good. When you consider that Mix had two thousand. Yeah, not bad at all. Yeah, and, uh, and this, this is for just some kind of a weirdo editor kind of. Right. It, it, well, it, essentially a competitor to, to Visual Studio, right? Except more of an open source. That's why there's the it's Eclipse the open Foundation. Source ID. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I think a lot of a lot of the people that are there are just using Eclipse uh, to give themselves a programming uh, environment. Yeah, it's fair enough. I like mean, like I they're not they're just they're just building apps on top of the Eclipse frameworks and stuff. Oh right, yeah. yeah there's to, a huge plugin ecosystem. He said that uh, the, the director of the foundation was there, Mike, mm-hmm. and he said they have like thousands and thousands of plugins. It's very much analogous to the Firefox plugin ecosystem, which is very robust. But but a lot of them are even just like 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 those Zool apps, you know what I mean? Like people use it, they use the framework to make any kind of GUI to make a GUI application that's going to run cross-platform using Java, because they've oh, wow. got the framework that is the, the Eclipse. Eclipse is built on this Java framework that's more that's native. It doesn't go through that AWT awkwardness mm-hmm. that the other Java apps go through. Right. Uh, it goes directly to the native uh, APIs, basically. So you can make. I see. You can make more native-looking, faster, more bulletproof, shinier, and more gooder GUI applications. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but that's... <laughs> well, you know more than I do, which is, <laughs> I, I profess a little bit of ignorance. I, I know that Eclipse has gotten really good. I do know that. Yeah. For a long time, I felt like Visual Studio was sort of the pinnacle and nothing else came close. But now I feel like Eclipse has achieved rough parity for the most part, with Visual Studio, for the, for the core parts that programmers would actually use. Mm-hmm. Plus, it has this awesome plugin ecosystem. You know, right. I mean, who can argue the utility of that? Yeah, you, I mean, you Firefox know, is a living testament to how powerful that is. The Visual Studio, I mean, there are there are plugins, like there's the, uh, what's that tomato thing called? 
for Visual uh, Visual Studio. Visual Assist, I think. Yeah, Visual Assist. Why was I saying t- tomato? Visual Assist. Uh, it's, it's tomato. So the, the company the has a tomato in the whole tomato. Zone. Whole tomato. They make mm-hmm. Visual Assist, which is a well-known Visual Studio add-in, and there's a bunch of slightly lesser-known ones. But the ecosystem isn't really quite there because what happens? Maybe it's what happens is the Visual Studio team knows that these are flaws in their product, and every time a new version comes out, it always incorporates you know 50% of the stuff that Visual Assist had, usually done in some simplistic and insufficiently good way, but it's good enough to take away a little bit of business from the poor, poor folks at Ultimato every time. Well, how do you balance that? I mean, well, it's hard to be a vendor. Hand. Whenever you're, you have a commercial platform, you know the people providing plugins for you are offering features that pretty much have to be on your roadmap. D- does that make sense? I, you know, we, we, we um, for example, uh, there were a bunch of companies that tried to offer Fogbugs hosting, mm-hmm. and we really appreciated them uh, when when they were around when we didn't have a hosted version of Fogbugs. Um, but you know, we we couldn't tell them we're never going to do this. And so we never really did. We, we, and it should have been somewhat obvious to them that at some point we would probably want to have our own hosting. And we even gave them like a long warning period where we said, hey, Fogbugs On Demand is coming up. And so you guys better be you know, either offering more value-added services other than just Fogbugs hosting uh, mm-hmm. or whatever because you are going to be competing against us. And when we did come out with Fogbugs hosting, we made it way more expensive than, than they have it, than, than they charged. So basically we gave them a max amount of cover, but they still were pissed off at us. <laughs> well, wow. Really? Yeah. Even but though that's, you were way nicer than, than most companies. We were probably been. nicer than, than we had to be, but I mean, essentially we were kind of sort of taking away their business. And whenever you build on a platform, on a commercial platform, like Visual Studio, uh, y- you have to at some point realize that the, the, the vendor, if you're, tr- if you're just filling in a hole in some vendor's offering, they're not, they're, they're not going to put up with that for very long. Eventually, they're going to fill it in themselves because they kind of have to. They can't just keep telling all their customers, oh, if you need um, you know, this hole filled in, go to this third-party vendor because the customers are like, eh, I don't really want to have to deal with two separate companies. and I don't know. That, does, that doesn't work for very long, and eventually people will just build the stuff in. The vendors will, will just build it in. But the great thing about the Eclipse world is it's all open source. So you can make a plug-in and there's very little risk that they'll have any interest in, in building it in. Sure. Like there's nobody on the Firefox team right now that's trying to figure out how to get ad blocking added to Firefox. <laughs> because why bother? There's a, there's ad block. Yep. Well, that's one of the concerns people have about Chrome and that Chrome is going to have an, a plug-in architecture solution in, in V2. It's already in the developer channel. It is. Yeah. Uh, but obviously they can't condone an ad block. Why not? Being Google and all. Oh. <laughs> Since that's where most of their money comes from. But one way for them to have an out is to say, oh, we don't condone ad block, but there happens to be an ad block, you know, for people that yeah. want to use it so they can sort of have their cake. You know what? I, I would make it to Maybe I'm weird here, but if, if there was a way just to stop flashing. Yeah, but you can't. I mean, I. I'm sort I of surprised that Microsoft doesn't have that. You'd think at some point that the, the disability people at Microsoft would have required them. You know, there's, there's the whole ADI compliance department at Microsoft would have said, we have to have a way for some people that want to turn off any kind of flashing or animations to be able to turn them off. And in mm. fact, there is a checkbox to turn off animated GIFs, and IE is the only one that has it, probably for that reason. Uh, well, a little pro tip, and I'm always surprised how many people don't know this. You can just hit escape to stop all 
animated GIFs. Yeah, but it won't. The trouble is, it's all Flash nowadays, and there's no way to turn that. <laughs> well, off yeah, that doesn't flash. work on Flash. Yeah, and actually, that doesn't work on Chrome, which was kind of mildly annoying. Chrome doesn't implement the hit escape to stop animated to stop GIFs. Flashing, right. Uh, surprisingly, but all other just gives me a headache. I swear, I would t- I would tolerate any number of advertisements if they just didn't flash. Would you pay a subscription fee? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I might. I would pay. Yeah, I would pay for a browser that that had no flashing. Yeah, if it was better than, like, I really want to like IE8 or or Chrome. I really want to use. Oh, Chrome hey, or let me let me say some positive things about IE8. I yeah. I am very impressed really? with the final IE8. I must say, I was. Well, I think a, the betas were so bad that oh. I just completely <laughs> got freaked out, and I was like, I'm never gonna. I, I don't even want to think about it. And then when it after using it, I was I was like, this is going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. And it's been great. I love the features. Like it's got an integrated search now. Control F does something rational. <laughs> it has colored tabs. Have you noticed that when you go to different sites? If you open say three tabs on the New York Times and two tabs on Stack Overflow, those oh, will be color coded to group them. Yeah, which I'm sure is a plugin. I'm stop with the email. I know there's plugins that do this. My point is that it's built in. Yeah. Um, and it's fast. It's really fast, and it doesn't break the web. From what I can tell, there's that I you know act like IE7 button, and it's, it looks like they have some kind of script where if they know a site's going to be broken, they force the mode for you. They have a list of known broken sites. Yeah, which is kind of I don't know if that really because then you got to update. It's, it's constantly updating that list. Well, they have an update of phishing sites. I mean, they're already doing this. Yeah. Actually, that was the observation I had when I talked to Chris Wilson at that little Microsoft event I was at about a year ago. I mentioned to him, I was like, well, if you guys are going to do phishing. Mm-hmm. Phishing is a list of websites, right? These are websites that are going to fish you. Yeah. Uh, why not have another list of websites called these are websites that have a really bad rendering model and <laughs> break in IE8? So I have a stupid question. It seems like that means that every time you go to a site, it's going to have to ping some Microsoft server and find out. Not every can... time. This is done in a cached type. It's like DNS, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to cache this list at some point. You're not, you're not going to check every single time. Right, right, right. But it does It does mean that you, you when you're going to a new site that you've never been to before... It's going to take a little bit longer. Is it possibly maybe the fish- list? Possibly for phishing. I don't think it's quite as critical for the rendering issue. If a site doesn't render exactly right, you know, you don't lose your credit card right. information. So, but I think these are related solutions. But I did want to give a shout out to IE8 because I was very impressed actually with the final. I know you wrote a lot about it, so I would encourage you to try it. I, think I wrote a lot about it. Oh, I wrote about how, how how you could just go to the most basic thing like like Google Maps and it wouldn't work. Yeah, but yeah, but they did. I don't. I don't think that's the case now. Well, it, it's not the case because it's on their list. Yeah, of incompatible that's okay. sites. As long as it works, I don't care how they do it, man. I mean, yeah. to the end user, it doesn't matter as long as it works, right? Uh, and yeah, then that, the might be a, that might be a the IE7, the IE7 fallback mode has actually been really useful. This is the first browser, like say when IE7 came out. Yeah. Um, if stuff didn't work, how did you fire up a copy of IE6? Well, you had to have a virtual machine. I mean, it was doable, but it was kind of a pain. Whereas with IE8, the IE7 rendering mode is like 90%. It's accurate enough that you don't need a virtual machine for the most part. So if you want to see how your site's going to behave in IE7 and IE8, you just flip the button. Where is which the button is very, now? They moved you know, it. it you, you it's right at big, the top, right no, by the, the address bar. Where? I don't see it. Sometimes it doesn't show up. <laughs> I haven't quite figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if it's already in IE7. Like, okay, when oh, I, I can't I find it. I was at Google, and it didn't show up. It's not showing up uh, for me. Now, now I'm at Coding Horror, and coding it shows up. Coding Horror. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's, it, yeah, it I don't really understand that, but it's usually there for most sites. I guess yours is a site they don't know about, and Google already has the tag. It's a site they do know about. Joel on Software has a tag saying this is an IE7 site. 
I think. Uh, you sure you still need that, though? I don't think you need that. I know that coding hard doesn't need it. Stack Overflow doesn't need it. Well, it's free. Why not just tell them, saying, stupid Microsoft, I don't know you. Actually, where, where, is, where is that tag? It's is in the, that it's the URN schemasmicrosoft.com VML? No, that's something else. Uh, there actually is one page in Stack Overflow where we had to do that. Let me explain. It's, it's the, Maybe the page on the it. user profile where we actually show your reputation graph. Oh, wait. Sorry. Okay, I was just finishing the previous conversation. Sorry. It's not. I I, I didn't. I used an HTTP header. I have an HTTP header. That's why it's not in the H, HTML. I see. So we just set our we we set all our web servers to just ask for IE seven mode, and that uh, solved that problem in ten that seconds. Really necessary, but you know. No, it was actually because there were there were uh, yeah it was. for the beta, but they changed a lot of the rules in the final. I mean, I didn't change anything on coding horror. And coding horror didn't render properly render properly in IE eight beta. That really freaked me out. So they just, they just a, added it to their list of things that need to be rendered with IE7. I don't think they did that. I think they actually fixed the, whatever no. the problem was. Okay. I could be wrong. I've been wrong many times before. No, you, you may be right. Uh, yeah. You're probably, you're probably right because your site still shows up with that little button that switches to IE7 mode, and that wouldn't make any sense. Right. So you said for Stack Overflow, there were some things that... Uh, There's one page we use on the... The reputation graph uses this JavaScript library called Flot, Float, F-L-O-T, What's a reputation graph? Uh, if you go to your user page and the reputation tab of your user page, there is a graph of your reputation Whoa. over time. I never saw that. You've never seen this? No. We've had it for months, and you've never <laughs> seen this. That's hilarious. Okay. That's well, cool. Th- Why did you do this? Oh, hey, everybody, try this out. There's like a graph there. It's like ActiveX, right? Or is uh, it? Uh, is that yeah, all it's dynamic? That's hilarious. No, it's, <laughs> it's JavaScript. Really, that whole dragging is all done with JavaScript? Yeah, it's a jQuery plugin. But it uses an element that has been deprecated in IE8. I think it's, oh gosh, I want to say Canvas something. I can't remember the name of it. But if you you flip on on that page, we flip on the IE7 rendering mode. Because there's no replacement for this Mm -hmm. in IE8. Like, we looked at it technically and we're like, we'd have to write it in Silverlight, which is, there's just no way we're going to go to that amount of effort to fix one browser. This is cool. You select a range of dates and it shows you... Why you earned reputation during that range? Yeah, welcome to October, Joel. <laughs> this, this feature of last year. This feature clear. is simultaneously awesome and completely and utterly useless. <laughs> well, Jeff, worked it's on. like it's like the movie. It's like the movie. Uh, uh, what was that? What was that? Uh, what was the movie? It was the uh, Starship Troopers. <laughs> simultaneously, simultaneously, the worst movie and the best movie you'll ever see. <laughs> I like Starship Troopers, actually. Yeah, exactly. But it's so bad, it's good. Yeah, that's. I can see that. I can see that. But it's got you know, it's got Doogie Howser. That's awesome. Oh yeah, NPH it's, for the win. NPH, NPH is the bomb. So yeah. you can't say anything bad about NPH. No. Yeah. So that was EclipseCon. Uh, I know that's how we started this. I don't know how we got where we are, mm-hmm. but it was good to have a talk with me. And you know, I'm always bringing up Clay Shirky to the point that. He, he was an entry on the bingo card. I actually mailed that to Clay Shirky. I was like, Clay, was. check it out. <laughs> You're an entry on our bingo card for the podcast. That's how much we talk about you. He thought that was very funny. Uh, and it was good to have you know him giving the theory and me giving the practice of you know examples from the book and illustrating things that happened on the site, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just social software stuff. So it was very fun. It, it seemed to be pretty well received, so that was good. Great. Now, I... I have a question for you. Now, I saw you mention something on Twitter about 
buying solid-state hard drives because... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should ask you about that. They're already here. Well, not, not the solid-state hard drive so much, although we can certainly talk about that. But uh, the logic behind it was, I think somebody asked you, why are you doing this? And you said, because you didn't want them to optimize the compiler. Yep. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, the, the, one of the developers, uh, Brett, came to me about a week ago and said, would it be okay if we took a few days and just, uh, I think you might have actually said a few weeks, and try to do some <laughs> optimization work to try to get the, the compiler compile time down? Because it is our own compiler. And I think they're typically, I think, I think what had happened is he had been compiling fog bugs. It might be a 20-second compile time. I'm not 100% certain about these numbers, but I'll publish them if I, when we do some benchmarks. Um, and, uh, and he was working on a, temp, uh, on a plugin for fog bugs, and the plugins can be written in any .NET language. And in fact, we're going to move a lot of our development to plugins now that we have a plugin architecture. And he was just, you know, realizing what a big difference it makes having, you know, a two-second compile time versus the 20-second compile time um, and, and how much it improves sort of the quality of your life because when you have 20-second compile time, you're either going to be incredibly bored because just try staring at the screen for 20 seconds. That's a long time. Or you're going to find something else to do in those little 20-second periods and that just sort of, you know, then you've got Reddit dragging you away from your job all day long. Right. Like, I'm not even listening to you anymore. I'm actually browsing the web now. That's how long. <laughs> That's how long I just went. <laughs> So he wanted to the permission to take a few weeks and, you know, just try to see what they can eke out of the compiler. And I said, you know, I will spend any amount of money <laughs> to make your computer faster before we try and make the compiler faster. You oh, know, and sure. there may be I mean, things, there may be cases where we can parallelize and take advantage of multiple CPUs because I'm not sure we're doing that. Uh, although we do have a problem, which is that the way Fogbug's code works, it's not a bunch of imports that are linked together. It's basically one gigantic page and that we just have to compile from top to bottom. Um, so it's, I, I'm not even sure if it is highly parallelizable, but, um, so, so, so that was, you know, basically we want to get everybody up to the maximum amount of memory they can have. I think most of our developers are on 64 bit operating systems, so they should easily be able to put six or eight gigs. Oh God. Memory's great. I, have I talked about this in the podcast? Like going to eight gigs has like changed my life. Mm -hmm. Like I really feel like. Particularly, and I know you don't like Vista, but Vista does a much, much better job than XP of like aggressively caching stuff. So I, I swear going from 4 gigs to 8 gigs was like revelatory for me. Well, um, like It really changed the behavior of my system. So and Michael, always actually, go for memory. Uh, go for memory, definitely. And let me recommend something while I simultaneously disrecommend it. I went over to Michael's office, and he had just um, switched computers, um, so, uh, which was the easiest way of switching to Vista 64 instead of... XP32, which is what he was using. And, um, and he said, do I even have enough memory on here? And I said, uh, um, probably not. And we looked, and it looked like he only had 4 gig of memory. And he's like, how do I even find out what chips are compatible and what I can get and how many slots I have free and what I should buy? And I said, oh, easy answer, crucial.com. And click on a little thing, and it gives you a tiny little program, and you run it, and it tells you everything. It's just awesome. Um, cool. So we went to Crucial.com. He downloads a little program, which I had just run at home the day before. And it was like, yes, you have this exact model and this thing, and this is the exact memory you need. And it was just terrific. It gave me all kinds of, you know, it had an FAQ designed for you, for your exact computer, um, mm -hmm. all about how to upgrade your memory. And, uh, uh, and he runs it, and he gets the blue screen of death. <laughs> awesome. Which, which I haven't seen. I am not kidding now. I have not seen the blue screen of death for like a decade. It's been a while. It's pretty rare. And he's like, it's got to be my iPod that it's plugged in. So he unplugs the iPod and he does the whole thing again. Blue screen of death again. So if you go to crucial.com, I get the feeling that they have somehow managed to create an application 
that will create the blue screen of death on 64-bit Vista, which I'm guessing mm. they just didn't test in that particular environment. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. The so other thing I can recommend is uh, but, uh, there's this app called CPU-Z. Oh, okay. Which will also give you a bunch of detailed information. I don't think it'll blue screen, but it gives you really detailed information about the memory you have and stuff like that. Does so it the tell point you, like, you what could... type of chips to have and what the speed of the yeah, chips that you want to get is? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's a little bit more technical because it's like a diagnostic. It's like a. Right. It's for tweakers, it's for but it, yeah. it has enough information you could definitely run the software. Crucial just leaves you with a nice little buy now button. You're like, blink. And it's not expensive. I mean, you can pr- basically, you know, memories. What ten dollars a gig now or something? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, I think I paid less than about a hundred dollars for eight gig. Right. So, uh, so the next then, thing I wanted to get was an SSD drive, and there was this long RC. No. What was the name? Of, what's the name of that freaking website that 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 had the long article about that the Intel, the Intel drives? Ars Technica was it Ars Technica? Mm, it wasn't them. No. Well, let me just put my standard caveat around solid-state drives. They're great, An- An- but... Anand's tech. Anand's tech. Yeah. You can link to this tech. thing. They have this, this, this thing. They've they basically been working with these things for six months. But go yeah, ahead. So let Tell me put my standard disclaimer around solid-state hard drives. Yeah. I was a very, very early adopter of solid-state hard drives. And right. what I learned was yeah. um, you, you have to buy really high-end now to get the kind of performance you would expect from a solid-state hard drive that's actually that much better. You have to buy the fancy Intel ones, yeah. or at least do your research very carefully. You've yeah. got to buy the nice ones to get the right performance. Yeah, so apparently Intel has come up with these ones. They're called the, the uh, X25M, yep. and you can get them in 80 gig or 160 gig, and they're, I think, uh, about $400 or $800 for, for yeah, 80 and 160 they're pricey, but they're awesomely fast. Yeah, and these ones, and, and, and I just read this long review on Anantech, and it made them sound awesome. And uh, it may also made them sound much, much better than everything else that's out there. And so, um, so I ordered a few of those. I'm going to try them out. I'm going to try one out on my laptop, and I'm going to try a couple on a couple of machines here around the office. And if they work, we'll get um, a whole bunch more. That's a good strategy. Start with a couple and see how yeah. they work. And- so the idea is it's, you can only get 160 gigs, so you basically have to get you know the the programs that you use regularly, your operating system, and all the source code you're working on, on your main drive, and then you can have another you know terabyte drive that's slow for the stuff that you don't use that often for your music collection, your photographs, and your movies and stuff. Well, that's uh, what I recommend. I recommend that structure anyway because a lot of times having two spindles, even if you have two hard drives, mm-hmm. it's just really flexible to be able to unzip drive like a file from A to B and have mm-hmm. two different spindles doing the work. You're basically parallelizing the work. Uh, there, so it's the same principle. So I'm totally down with the two drive scenario. I have been for a long time. Do they really? When you have sat, I mean, it seems right, but somehow whenever I go to my second hard drive, mm-hmm. things get really slow. I don't know why that is. Mm, is there any reason shouldn't. for that? I have. I currently have two drives on my main desktop. Well, it's the same reason. Like on a database server, you would have the operating system on one drive. And yeah, the yeah data I mean, it makes sense. But weren't the they old? Weren't like if if you went back to the IBM XT. And you put two hard drives on. Didn't it have some kind of a circuit so really only one of them was spinning at any given time, just the, the way the old controllers worked? Or am I, I now no imagining idea. something that's never I, I true? I have no idea. That's real trivia that you just brought up. <laughs> I just imagine. Probably just made it up. So that's awesome. So is everybody at Fog Creek getting uh, these upgrades or just uh, well, if the they work, if, if we can get work. you know, If we can get the compile, I'm, I'm expecting that the – I don't even know, and, and I'll report on this, but my guess from everything I've heard is that we probably should be able to get our compile down from about 20 seconds to about 10 seconds. And if that's the case, then I would get everybody one of these. Yeah. Well, 
Okay, so that's probably about. W- when you started this, I mean, did you have evidence that that the disc is actually the bottleneck? No, I have no. I have, that's why I'm trying it first. I have no evidence well, of. Well, of this anything. is this is. Well, I wrote the blog post about basically throwing money at the problem because it it really yeah. is cheap to throw. I mean, we're talking like a hundred dollars for eight gigs of memory. This drive is a little pricey, granted, but just as an experiment, it's worth spending eight hundred dollars to figure out if it's going to work or not. Right, right. Compared to what it would cost to have the developers go off, when you think about the opportunity cost of of, of a developer who could be working on Fog features. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, we're like literally at this point. I keep reminding people of this, and I'll announce it now in in, in public. Basically, every month that Fogbug Seven ships earlier is another two hundred thousand dollars that we have to split up for our profit sharing mm-hmm. bonus this year. Right. <laughs> so it's like just figure out there's a handful of programmers and two hundred thousand dollars to be grabbed if you can ship this thing a month earlier. That like sure. there's really. To, to, to spend three weeks to do some kind of compiler optimization so you can you know, build in five seconds instead of 20 seconds is just not cost-effective compared to just getting the software out sooner and just throwing some hardware at the problem, as you said. Well, let's, let's ask the other hard question, which is, well, why have your own compiler at all? Why even spend time? Because <laughs> otherwise, I mean, you have to spend the let's time go deeper. porting the code to a different language. And so but it was, this, was, well, this was faster than porting all the code to a different programming language. You know, I mentioned to Clay that you guys are releasing a new version of Fogbugs because he asked, how's Fogbugs doing? And I was like, oh, I think it's doing good. And I mentioned there's going to be a new version. And I said, it's been a really long release cycle. And he sort of got why. He's like, oh, you're making architectural changes. And, and I, I told him, I was like, but they have to have features too. You can't just have an architecture release. And then we I planned, thought, we planned to have an architecture release, but that, but then we realized that that would people would be yes. pissed. Well, was, that would be the that yeah. would be the funniest possible release of Fogbugs. Yeah, it's it does like exactly contrary to everything Joel has ever said. This is the release that's the same as the previous release, but like in a different language. <laughs> <laughs> no new features, but you get to buy it again. <laughs> that's when we know Fogbugs is over. When there's that release. Hi. Yeah, I guess that's so what I, the OS X was like. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> there are very rarely. Have there ever really been just pure architecture releases of any software? I mean, there's always some. Features, well, the people right? that are doing frequent, yeah, the people that are doing like weekly or monthly or quarterly releases mm-hmm. for whatever it may be, would certainly, if they had just, you know, I don't know, changed a whole bunch of architecture, they would certainly deploy that, right? Like wouldn't that what make sense? If you had, a, if you if you if you went into Stack Overflow and you changed, well, you just did. Did you guys deploy that yet, or are you finished with that? No, no, we're still working on the database refactoring. So you're it's doing just the database refactoring, and when you do that, there's no reason to put it on the server because nobody's going to see the difference. But you will, right? Yeah, you'll we deploy will. it to the server oh, because you want the new code to get uh, tested and banged on and refreshed, and yes. you just want to find out sooner rather than later about the bugs that you've created. Absolutely. So there is some reason to do a. a um, well, performance, and, and Clay actually brought this up. He's like, well, you might do it if there was like 30% more performance. And we're looking at one of the reasons we're doing this database refactoring is, well, there's several reasons. One is potentially actually quite a bit more performance because we're, well, let me caveat that, some performance because we're removing a lot of joins that were just incredibly annoying. Um, so removing joins, we're going to reduce our space requirements because it's a better representation of the data with less duplication mm-hmm. of the data. Uh, and then the third thing is it simplifies our code substantially. So it makes it easier for us to work on the application in the longer term when you don't have to write. When every stupid query in the system is five joins, mm-hmm. then that's that's annoying. <laughs> that's a disincentive to do stuff on the system. Um, so those are the reasons that we do it. That's the reasons we would have a pure architecture release. Because you're right, we actually are going to have a pure architecture release 
but nobody pays for it. That's, I guess, the main difference. Nobody's yeah. buying this. Well, software. nobody people people just sort of subscribe to in the sense that they have maintenance contracts. They get it all free anyway. But yeah, we that, that we did finally decide that if we try to get the trouble of having everybody upgrade for a purely, although the architectural release was going to have plugins, so that's a major that enables a lot of features to customers. But then oh, yeah, we realized, is yeah, big deal. But it's not enough because everybody will say, "I don't need a plugin. I need stuff." I don't know. We just basically well, are decided you guys that we might seed, as well. Let's talk about plugins. Are you guys going to seed the plugins? You're going to write some reference plugins? Yeah, sure. We got a bunch of Such good ones. Such uh, Let's see what I can tell you about. Oh, I'm not secrets. supposed to talk about. Yeah, I'm not supposed to tell you anything. Why are there all the secrets? What's with all the secrets? Well, because we don't announce things until we actually have shipping software. Oh, what do you guys, otherwise, do you guys it's think? Like, like Apple? Do you think there's going to be like a the live <laughs> blog of you releasing this? No, it's that it's making a promise to customers, and then and then that's a promise that I have to keep. And I don't want to keep say, promises. Joel, just say it really quietly, like this, like really quiet, so they can't hear you. <laughs> uh, let's see. For example, uh, I see here. Um, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a handful of wiki plugins that let you do things like put a table of contents in the wiki. You can basically add stuff to the wiki. Um, there's plugins for things. I'm not going to say what they are, but in general, there's the, the, some of the early plugins that we're going to ship is stuff that customers ask for, but we don't really believe belongs in Fogbugs. But mm-hmm. we're going to make it available as a plugin on the theory that it, at least the, the fact that you have to go t- download and turn on that plugin will at least make you think that this is not, that you should think twice about doing this particular thing. But if you really mm-hmm. want to, you can. I'm not going to talk any more than that about Fogbook 7 because um, like, uh, like uh, um, uh, um, I don't want to get you in trouble. I what's the name of the actor that, that played the Godfather? Uh, Marlon Brando? Marlon Brando. Did you see Freshman, the Freshman movie? with the, I did. That's a great movie. And he says, everything I say is by definition a promise. <laughs> So ever since I saw that movie, that's been my motto. Everything I say is by definition a promise. Yeah. Uh, so I don't. Which is why I do, the easiest thing is just not never talk about new features coming up in various versions because I don't want to make promises that I then have to keep track of and feel bad when I can't keep them. I see. Um, that's, that's fair. What else did I want to talk about? Any other? What was the? Is there any other aftermath of? Uh, of Mix 09 when we did that. Well, I do want to thank everybody that came. That Mix, that I listened to that show, as I always do when I do the transcript thingy, uh-huh. or the summary, rather, not the transcript. Uh, and it came out really good. I was really impressed with the quality of the questions we got. And yeah, it was fun. It, it, was, it, it was real fun. We, could, we, should do, we should do more live shows whenever we meet, we're in the same town together. Yeah, that um, worked really well. So thanks to everybody that came out for that, for yeah. sure. And what we couldn't talk about in last week's show was that we were on the, uh, in, the, in the keynote which yes. we had to keep secret. Very poorly kept secret because I had actually said that in the previous. Because <laughs> I suck at secrets. One thing you should learn about me is I suck at secrets. <laughs> I'm Microsoft, not a good secret the, keeper. The, the Microsoft Velociraptor almost bit your head off. That's true. When you, a little, when you little gentle reminder about the you know NDA we had signed. I was like, oh yeah, that thing that I filled out that I didn't even read. <laughs> I guess I should have read that. Anywho, so so for those of you listening at home, I have no idea what we're talking about. The the at, the, at Microsoft's big old mix con- conference, um, they actually um, brought me and Jeff out on stage to give a little demo of Stack Overflow, and we got about five minutes to talk about how awesome it was, uh, and how uh, how we used uh, the Microsoft ASP.NET MVC technology to build it. Um, so it was basically a promotion of their own technologies of ASP.NET MVC and um, BizSpark, right? Those are the two things. 
Yep, and then at the, at the end we were like, gotcha. It all compiles down to wasabi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And we're using Emacs as our IDE. <laughs> it was like punked, you know? <laughs> Uh, so we were, we got to be we got to be on stage with uh, this, the goo, Scott mm-hmm. Goo, who Joel did not really know. You didn't know the goo, really? Yeah, you know I'm not that much of a of a you know a Microsoft. But uh, you're such movie. a Microsoft. I don't want to use the word. Nah, no, nope. you've been accused of being a Microsoft shill, and yet you don't even know. So yeah, you know I what? Half the time I'm accused of being a Microsoft be a shill. Half the time I'm being accused of being a Microsoft hater, and half the time I'm being accused of being a Microsoft shill, and that's how I know I'm doing something right. You should have seen when I wrote that why Microsoft lost the API war. There was just mm-hmm. like a whole category of people that were like, oh, this guy must be an enemy of Microsoft. Right. It's kind of infuriating that people assume that you're either an enemy of Microsoft in every way. And so if you say anything in any way negative about anything that happened to them, no matter how true it is, that, that is because you are an, an evil person from the enemy. And and it's the same thing. The same thing happens with the Apple people, and the same thing happens with the Ruby people, and the same thing happens with the, you know, a lot of these communities are so friggin' flag wavy, and and parochial, uh, that they just assume that if you've said anything at any time negative about any a- anything or anything positive about something else, that that must be your flag, and that must be the the, the group that you. And well, I don't know why they're making it into such a friggin' religious war. Like it's like it's like the the. Afghanistan tribal areas, you know? Well, it's fun to have... Well, this is kind of what my blog entry was, which you objected to, but it's about having an enemy. You know, sometimes... <laughs> sometimes you want to you wanna have this mock conflict. It's like yeah. professional wrestling. Just wait till Experts Exchange finds you in the street and punches you in the nose, Jeff. Oh, <laughs> then I, you can I tell realized, me it's fun I've to have an enemy. Well, okay, here's, okay here's, here's why. You complained <laughs> about that. Here's why I wrote that. Yep. Somebody came up to me at Mix and yep. said, thank you so much. He went out of his way to say, thank you so much for finally like giving me an alternative to Experts Exchange. Yeah. You know? and, and it really motivates people. Like They really see us as like you know the hero and we haven't really done much other than just execute reasonably well it's the fact that experts exchange is out there creating enemies like they're actively out there mm-hmm. sowing dissent in the world which is such a bad strategy obviously but if anything we should be thanking them for doing mm-hmm. this like we should be like helping them piss Thanks, people guys. off <laughs> because all it does is make <laughs> us look good like we don't have to do anything really to look good right so i realized after hearing that because I was kind of loath to explain it in terms of we're like you know we're like experts exchange. But everybody but knew the- that. Everybody knew that even without us saying it. There's something different about us saying it that, in some ways, demands a response from them. Now that now now everybody that works at Experts Exchange has seen your blog post. They've all forwarded it around, and they're all having meetings trying to decide what they're going to do about it. But and I, before I don't think they might possible. have just kind of ignored us. I, I think I don't think they care. I mean, I think that's the hallmark of a company like that. Is like they're they're at a stage where they just don't care. They're just doing their thing. They yeah. don't really care. The money's coming in. They don't care. I really believe they don't care. Well, I mean, if, if they smart, do they care, have to realize that the money's going to stop coming in. I don't think so. I think there's enough of a market for the the way they're doing it that they'll continue to be. They'll never be. It's a bad long term strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Long. I mean, long. They, they have the Encyclopedia Britannica strategy combined yeah, with some it, some kind of e- evil um, search engine optimization and. and Basically showing Google different results than they show the real world. Well, okay, this does go both ways. So you know that I've talked about the Plenty of Fish guy, Marcus Friend, mm-hmm. before? 
as sort of a, uh, someone we look to as a guy who can scale to a huge degree with just a couple servers running, you know, the Microsoft stack. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's really interesting with him is he's the classic example, and he even talks about it on his blog, where you pick a pay service, such mm-hmm. as dating, mm-hmm. and you come in with a free alternative, mm-hmm. which is what he did. Mm-hmm. And we're talking like 2002 era, back when AdSense was first starting up. He was one of the first people to really pick up on AdSense as well. So he's sort of a pioneer in that area, too. And you're essentially attacking these pay services by with offering free service. ad-subsidized free service. Uh-huh. And he's actually come full circle on that now, which is really intriguing. He's got His free service has gotten so big, and there's so much data, it's actually starting to cost him real money to run it now, mm-hmm. which I think he's concerned about. And in terms of overhead and effort and stuff like that, I think for a long time it was so easy for him to run it, he didn't care. But now it's getting actually hard to run the free site. And he's made enough money, he's actually trying to buy a pay site. Mm-hmm. Because he realizes really? there's, a market for people who, oh. there's a market for people who want to pay for this. Somebody for told me, M- Michael told me that he just made a premium service where you pay him a few bucks and you get a little dollar sign or something next to your name. That makes you more desirable, of course, as a potential date because you're willing to pay a few bucks. I, I don't know, and but he is, realized he's. Yeah, I think he's he selling realized, little dollar signs next to your name. No, but he's actually going to go out and buy a pay site. He realized he's he's leaving money on the table for the for the part of the audience. For it's like, oh no, I don't want this free crap. Audience. Yeah, I yeah. want to pay money to do this. Yeah, that he's going to. I mean, how ironic! I mean, you start out as a free site, and you eventually end up buying a pay site. Well, let's so see that how well it works. so that you don't leave money on the table. That's crazy. Yeah. But no, I mean that may that may or may not work. We'll see how well the the, the pay the pay thing works. I think charging his existing users a free a, a, a premium for. Even just having a little dollar sign next to their name or something that indicates that they're pro members or something, that makes a lot of sense to me. And he bring in a lot of revenue from the ten percent of his users that really care enough to to pay or you know want to support him or just want to look like they're they're premium type people. They're not just sort of surfing by. But uh, um, it, it, for him to actually buy an existing site, I don't know what, how much sense that makes. And it remains to be seen. Well, let, let me give idea. you let me give you the three reasons. So I actually looked up his blog entry. It's titled "Looking to Acquire." Yeah. It says, "I'm letting hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue slip through my fingers every year by sending people to competitors' sites." In other words, they're advertising on his site, oh, so I he's making money, but yeah. they're going to the pay right. site and ultimately paying them. Right. So there's three reasons. One, on a paid site, people expect limited, high quality choices. On a free site, users expect unlimited choice. This is why things like personality. It's too bad we're not. Uh, we should, you should before you write the show notes. Check check on this because I think that he later, after writing this article about how he wanted to buy a site, said this is just not going to work. I'm going to have my own pay version, and he gave up on the idea of like buying Match.com or whatever one of the because those are that would be expensive. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so on March 5th, he wrote, "In the next several days, I'll be releasing a paid feature on Plenty of yeah. Fish." There you okay, go. so but it doesn't sound like he backed off on the buying though. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to just buy some. He just wanted to just like also own some some other. He was. I think he was looking for like a second tier site, not a Match. dot com, but you know I one see. of these sort of unknown. And I think he may not have found anything that was at a price that he that he really wanted. Because I mean, the truth is, you can you can try to buy a business, but when you buy a business, the minimum amount you're going to have to pay is the net present value of the future stream of earnings from that business. Mm-hmm. You know, so it would have to be a case where him owning the business made it worth more than whoever actually did own the business, which it would, because he would he would obviously be funneling a lot of... Wait, this is hilarious. Hold on. I have to talk about this image. So, you're right. March 5th, he... Ind- I don't know if this, you know, obviates his need to buy a site, but there's a feature where you pay extra money and you get mm-hmm. an icon. It yeah. is literally called Serious Member. Yeah. I am a serious member. Yeah. <laughs> How much does that cost? Did he, uh, does he say? I don't know. 
It's not that no, much. No, it's, it's time based. It's three, six, or twelve months. That's hilarious. Yeah, it, it make it, it kind of makes sense. It, it's uh, something uh, we may want to do on Stack Overflow. Really? <laughs> no. Okay. I didn't, I didn't think so. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, speaking of which, I, we can't really talk about this because I don't really want to announce this feature yet that we're doing. But I have Features. started developing. I have started developing mockups of this new feature set using mm-hmm. balsamic mockups. I just want to. Um, we talked about them last time on the podcast. Just uh, I just, just want to bring it up again because I've been using it um, for the last few days. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's 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 actually what, what's really nice about it is it lets you make like a sketch of what a user interface is going to be, and it is physically impossible to make it look perfect perfect all you can do is sort of mock it up and that it it literally forces you not to obsess over colors fonts alignment getting everything to look exactly perfect it actually mm-hmm. keeps you moving forward in the design of your user interface we're just trying to figure out what fields are going to be here and what's going to be on what page and you know what kind of you know what do i need in the faq and it is like literally impossible to futz around with all kinds of stuff. For example, if you have a little drop-down box, you can't specify what the items are going to be in that drop-down box. All you can specify is what item is currently showing. So mm-hmm. instead of futzing around with like, oh, I'm going to put in all 50 states in my little state drop-down box, you can't. You just make a drop-down box and you put the word state in front of it and you're done because it, it sort of forces you to, to, to do the exact right amount of design for the first round of the design where you're just trying to figure out you know, what pages are going to be and what's going to be on them. That's smart. So that's just, what you're supposed to do. That's the philosophy of that's. The, yeah, the but sketching. I mean, I used to a lot of times. I used to, in the olden days, really olden days, I would use something like uh, like VB to design those uh, UIs, those, those first sketches of the UI, just to put in the spec. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were two problems. One is um, because it looked polished, people thought it was the real thing, and and they they argued about the polish. They were like, "Why don't these things line up? And where's the accelerator key for this thing?" And you're like, "No, no, I'm just talking about the, the basic design here. I'm not trying to solve it. Those problems will be solved later." But for the same reason, you were forced to dink around with all this stuff. You couldn't put a label on without like setting the right font and setting the size of the font and trying to line it up nicely. And it was just impossible when you were using a, a high quality dialogue editor not to create the dialogues. With, with with high quality, which means spending a lot of time on setting a lot of properties that don't really matter at the first stage in the design. So I really like that about balsamic mockups, the way that it kind of forces you just to do uh, like a really crapola job intentionally. Right. And it, I think he gets uh, it. He yeah. understands how it's supposed to work. Yeah. And I think uh, um, uh, Microsoft and Mix apparently announced this thing called Expression 3.0 Blend something. <laughs> Expression blend three. Yeah. yeah. Is this is that what used to be front page? And they no kind no, of, no 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 they no. kind of scrapped. This it is, a, this is a new set of products they introduced around the time Silverlight one point came out. And, but it was the same time that they killed front page. No, this is more like their design stuff. This is getting into Adobe territory. Okay. This is new. It's different. So so what related if, what to happened to front related, page? What's that? What happened to front page? I don't know. Hopefully Gone. it's dead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, well, there is an expression like a web designer, like a low end, but it, I don't think it shares any code with front page. It's a from scratch thing. Okay. And the sooner we kill front page, the better, as I'm sure everyone listening. So it agree. makes they announce some feature that's going to be in the 3.0 version of Expression Blend that will allow you to make sketches of a user interface, much like balsamic mockups. Mm-hmm. So I just did. I did want to mention that because it is sort of a potential competitor for them. On the other hand, a it's not shipping, and b I really do get the feeling that all they've done 
is giving you like controls that sort of look sketchy, but you still mm-hmm. run the risk when you're in a full-fledged development environment like that, that you're mm-hmm. going to sit around and dick around with typing in all 50 initials of all the 50 states for your combo dropdown with the states just because you can. You really you need an environment that prevents you from doing a good job on your UI in order to be forced to move through the design quickly, which kind of enables you to explore more of the design possibilities more quickly. Well, you're staying at the right level of precision mm-hmm. for the stage you're at in development. It's really tempting, particularly for developers. Developers love extra precision, you know, meaningless precision. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like in science, when you multiply two numbers that have a certain level of precision, you can't get more precision than you started with, that sort of thing. Now, one book, well, I want to talk about, the guy that was on us before the keynote, uh, Bill, Bill Buxton, Buxton mm-hmm. they gave, awesome. everybody at Mix got this book, I'm holding it, Sketching User Experiences. Yeah, and that must uh, be related which, somehow to the, the new sketch feature that they pre-announced. Yeah, but it was a neat book because, A, it's nice to have Microsoft have a guy talking about design as, like, the lead off on their keynote. Because, you know, nobody looks at Microsoft and says, you know, design. Yeah, now he Uh, is Microsoft Research, to be fair. Research, right. That means they don't have to listen to him. Yeah, yeah, true. (laughs) But it's kind of a neat book, and it's kind of what you're talking about, just, you know, sketching out stuff, getting it. Uh, It is. I I like that book. I I started reading it on the plane. The, The first two chapters I read were pretty good. Yeah. It's, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's going to be one of a long chain of books about design this year that spent three years, through the first three chapters, talking about the Apple iPod and <laughs> what good design Apple does. And it's like, yeah, it's true, but it's such a friggin' cliche that, that oh. they're, they're now like, there must be six or seven books that, are, that <laughs> just start out with a glowing hagiography of Apple mm-hmm. and their design acumen. Although True. Bill Buxton is a little bit more realistic about what Apple did well and what they did wrong than some of the books like, uh, um, what was that whole book about the iPod sh- Shuffle, was it called? or I don't know. iPod book. Um, wow, look how many iPod books there are. There's, there's an iPod, um, i got to find it now. Amazon iPod, iPod book. Those are the most generic search terms possible. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. There's so many, so many iPod books. Ugh, there was search a book. for the the. What are you doing? <laughs> trying, to, trying to find what this is. An early book about the iPod, <laughs> written by this guy that just has such a love affair with Apple that he's he's completely uredible. Man, there's like a thousand books about the iPod. How? How, how well could it be designed if you need all yeah. these books to learn how to operate it? Yeah, there's a cult. Although, I, my, my feeling about the iPod is that the iPhone is a much, much more important product in the big scheme of things. I think that iPhone is going to be so big that people are going to sort of forget about the iPod. And I, I realize the iPod is huge. And what I'm saying is the iPhone, I think, is going to be way huger. Sure. Well, I really believe that. It's, um, I mean, at some point, these things are going to are almost certainly going to merge. If everybody's carrying a phone and everybody's carrying a music device, right? you probably want one. Right. Sort and I also feel like the, the, the phone model, the sort of closed ecosystem model, was really what Apple was born to create. Mm-hmm. Like even their computers and stuff, they, they sort of grudgingly let other people write apps for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they really want to tightly control the experience. And that's fine, but it doesn't really match what we think of as you know, a personal computer should do. Right. Whereas the iPhone is more of a, 
an ecosystem that everything is really tightly controlled. You have these, you know, cellular networks you have to subscribe to. You have to pay for everything. I think, you know? yeah. Um, That's just the way they're so good at it. Here's the book I want to criticize. So well. I finally found it. There's a book called The Perfect Thing, How the iPod Shuffles Commerce, Culture, and Coolness by Stephen Levy, who is, I believe, a Newsweek reporter, or he was for a long time. And his favorite thing is just writing about how much he loves Apple uh, to the point of just ridiculousness. I mean, it's just like almost <laughs> amateurish. Uh, yes. And this book is just like – this, this was one of the early ones of just the obsession. I mean, the book is called The Perfect Thing. And yes. it's about the iPod. Well, and, wake me uh, up when he starts. He's going to start writing slash fiction about the iPod. That would be disturbing. <laughs> that would be. And, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and there's, there's so much of that stuff. And Bill Buxton's book, unfortunately, when I saw that the first three chapters or whatever, the first chunk of the book was about iPod design. It, it's just becoming a cliche to talk about how the iPod right. is. But what it does, actually, I think what iPod exemplifies and what Apple design exemplifies is a certain type of of a design aesthetic that professional designers practice and believe, which mm-hmm. I don't think is necessarily shared by, 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 um, by, by most people, certainly most Americans. Like, right. I actually think, I, I, I personally love the Apple design. I love the iPod design. I love the fact that when you buy a MacBook, it doesn't have a bunch of garish little stickers saying, you know, Intel inside and, and Vista compatible or Vista tolerant or whatever and and mm-hmm. you know all the crappy little stickers that they put on you buy a macbook it has no stickers on it because it's gross but yet it's 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 not a it's not mainstream to actually care about that and, and similarly i think i think there's always going to be uh, it, certainly in the u.s american market i think 80 to 90 percent of the people just don't really care about good design and they don't really appreciate good design when they see it they're just they're just not thinking in aesthetic sense or in design sense and well, I think you're thinking more in terms of what they get out of yeah. it. I yeah, think they care about the list of functions, and they care, they, they care about the functionality. And, and usability is one axis in that, definitely. But, you know, I think that they'll, they'll look at an iPod, and they'll look at, say, like a, like a BlackBerry or something, and they'll say, but the iPod mm-hmm. doesn't have keys. Right. Well, I, I, I think my observation there is, like, you know, us geeks, we obsess over the web browser wars, which are... There's some really cool web browser wars going on right now, but for most people, all they give a crap about is whether ESPN loads mm-hmm. or whatever CNN or whatever website they want to go to. The actual site they're going to is much more important than the browser they choose to get there. I mean, unless it's actively causing harm, which I mean, that's really not very common. Right. So I, I think it, it does help to put some context around it. Like even though we think Chrome is super cool and super you know lightweight and lean and has this neat minimalistic look, most people are, all they see is you know, ESPN. They don't really see the Chrome at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so that would be maybe one design lesson. Think about what the experience is. Do we have any user, uh, any calls this week? Any callers? Any call uh, yeah, we have a bunch. But I haven't really actually filtered any of them, so I'm just going to play one at Ooh. random, and we'll see what happens. Okay. Like, here's a good random one. It comes in from area code 352. That's all, that's all I know about it. I'm going to play it. I hope it's good. <laughs> Open with audacity. Of course, this file should be opened with audacity. Hey, this is Mike Sanford. Uh, I've been listening to you guys' podcast a lot. I really like the Stack Overflow concept. Uh, and you guys kind of touched on it one of your podcasts, that Stack Overflow doesn't need to be just about programming because there's been people that are asking for Stack Overflow for IT 
because they get their questions voted down or said inappropriate or whatever. Had you guys considered doing Stack Overflow code base for things decidedly not programming? For instance, I'm kind of a gearhead. I like working on cars. And whatever stuff goes wrong with a car, you know, you end up with the same problems as when things go wrong programming, trying to find answers, yada, yada, yada. It seems like the Stack Overflow model with the concept would work very well for this kind of a thing, too. Just curious what your guys' reactions would be, and uh, if and or when we can see Stack Overflow for car questions. Thanks. Bye-bye. Car questions. That's an awesome one. You know, I thought of about three new Stack Overflows that I want last week. Um, what were they? Oh, uh, Stack Overflow for, like, um, uh, system builders, where you can ask about, you know, what SSD drive is best or mm -hmm. what kind of memory you should put in or whether mm -hmm. it's worth adding going from 2 gig to 4 gig on a 32-bit system, for example. Is that worth it, by the way? Uh, on a 32-bit system? Yeah, like Windows XP. It depends on the video card because there's a huge chunk of 32-bit memory space reserved for you know, video hardware. Oh, and that could and, go and a, lot, top. a lot of video cards have like 512 plus megs of memory now. <laughs> right. Uh, and plus the BIOS, there's all these weird rules. So the general rule of thumb is you'll get a little over 3 gig. Oh, well, that's worth so, it then. Yeah. Okay. So if, if you feel like 3 gig is worth it, then do it. If not, then don't. So as far as answering the actual question, Clay had, um, part of Clay's contribution to the talk we did at EclipseCon was that one of the peculiarities of social software is that you, it's really difficult to take a social software formula and clone it and, and just make copies of it and have it do the same thing in a new environment. Like if you take a copy of Word, <laughs> Microsoft Word, and you copy it and you give it to somebody, uh, or some, they're going to use it to create documents. I mean, it does the same things no matter where you put it. But social software is unique in that it really depends on the community that you drop the software on mm -hmm. in terms of how they react to it, how they use it, what the norms are of that culture, what the technical abilities are, and what they're trying to accomplish with it, right? It's very much a mirror. It's a reflection of the community and how they work. And Clay had noted that Slashdot, I guess, is open source. Did you know this? Uh, yes. Slash code? Yes, slash code. And yet, okay, so Slashdot is open source. Where are all the hugely popular Slashdot clones? There was that Where, thing, Kiro, Shin, or whatever, but that was exactly like Slashdot. But uh, even that wasn't really like Slashdot, was it? I no, mean, it had I think the community was, I, I, I think they used Slash code, and the community was basically identical. Really? I never yeah. got the impression that it was that similar. Like, I didn't see that crazy discussion format with the modded funny and modded, you know, troll. What, what is that site actually called? Kuroshin? Yeah, with a five, right? Yeah, but Kurushin is not generally regarded as a success story. It's sort of limping along and doing some stuff, but yeah. it's not. It's 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 probably the, the the biggest slash code site. And then I guess it's you could also dot. look at the the other Reddits, not the programming Reddit and the, the subreddits, but like the te the times when they've taken Reddit and just dropped it on some community. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did that. They did that one with the lipstick thingamajig. The lipstick for thing. asked. It was a complete, completely different. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Work. I mean, I don't want to. We, we like the guys at Reddit. I don't want to say they're going to fail, but this that seems really succeed. risky to me. Yeah, like I feel like again, like it's just a mirror. That was uh, that was lip, lipstick.com, and you can go. This site's been up for years. Oh, it was replaced by WeHeart Gossip. Open link in new tab. What is WeHeart Gossip? They changed something about it, but there's just no nobody voting over there. There's almost no votes on anything. Oh, wow. yeah. So and also, there's a very disturbing ad of somebody wearing. Are you seeing this ad of the guy holding the rock band guitar? I have a different ad. 
Oh, that's disturbing. He's got like a pig nose. That's not something I would want to see if I was the audience for <laughs> WeHeartGossip.com, I would think. That, you know what? Their link about Zach Efron doesn't even work. Mm, how disappointing for you. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the site just didn't, didn't work on that other community. On the other hand, there are communities... There are communities that I think the Stack Overflow formula will work unchanged. Like I actually think uh, uh, system builders, gamers, um, uh, the, the service site that we're going to do is, is our number one priority. Um, on the other hand, there are other, other possible uses for it. Like I've heard accounting, project management, uh, law- lawyers, um, you know, this guy's idea of, of gear, of, you know, the top gear version of the site. Um, it will all uh, it's all um, well first of all some of those things like if it's auto mechanics you're not at your computer doing it mm-hmm. so there's something about the fact that a programmer is sitting at their computer that makes them much more likely to use internet type tools to solve their problems than the person so 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 for that reason you know we may we may never get the makeup artist site to quite take off I wonder what made them want to do this. Did they get bought by Condé Nast? This seems like such an odd choice yeah. for them. No, they did it. Uh, yeah, they are, first of all, they are bought by Condé Nast. They, that's, that's who bought okay. Reddit. But okay. I actually think that they might have, the first thing that might have happened is that Condé Nast did a little deal where they did this, uh, this lipstick site for them. And that led them to meet the people that caused Condé Nast to buy them. I see. So I, I think that the answer to the question is yeah. we need to be very careful and actually pick communities that we think would actually work and sort of go slow with this and make sure that we're adapting to the yeah. We need to adapt our software to the community. This isn't a cookie cutter, one size fits all type of scenario. Because any software guy, any programmer, looks and says, oh, you just copy the software and then it'll do the same exact thing in environment Y. Mm-hmm. And that's true of Photoshop, but I do not believe that's true of software because it's just such a reflection of, it's a mirror, it's a reflection of the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to adapt it. So we have a minute. I want to talk about one. Stack Overflow question, which okay. I love. Yeah, it's called "What is the most ridiculous pessimization you've seen?" Pessimization. See and it's three one two oh oh three. And what I like about this is that pessimization is the opposite of optimization. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Where you think you're optimizing, but you're actually pessimizing. Right, right. <laughs> you come up this with some crazy great. idea to make something better, yeah, like you're going to unwind Le some Dorfier. loop. Yeah. Absolutely. Ledorfier has some good examples. Let me give you some examples that I thought were really good from Ledorfier here. It's the second response with 12 upvotes. Databases are pessimization playland. Favorites include split a table into multiples because it's too big. <laughs> Create an archive table for retired records, but continue to union it with the production table. <laughs> well, we've all done that. <laughs> <laughs> Duplicate entire databases by division, customer, product, etc. Oh, well, you've got Resist- like a, yeah, yeah. You got you got the one for the IT, and you got one for the IT questions, yes. and one for the programming questions, and you've just duplicated the whole database. Yep, yep, yep. Resist adding columns to an index because it makes it too big. <laughs> Create lots of summary tables because recalculating from raw data is too slow. Create columns with subfields. And there's just a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, it's great. And there is the downside to you know optimization, right? Yeah. <laughs> but there is a, a, a dissenting opinion. In fact, the highest upvote, uh, the highest upvoted answer says he thinks the, the phrase premature optimization is the root of all evil is actually overused. Mm-hmm. And he thinks it's an excuse not to take performance into account until late in the project. And I can, I can see this. Uh, I, 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 first can, of all, I have to agree with that because it's not just that 
it's not just that you, you do have to take optimization into account when you design your architecture. I hate to use that word, but when you figure out basically how your program is going to work, mm-hmm. you, you, you have to think hard about whether the basic layout of your code even has the ability to ever be fast enough for, for what it needs to be. And that's not premature optimization. There's a lot of stuff you should do initially, like deciding what major data structures to use, what, even what programming language to use, you know, what your general strategy is going to be. I mean, think about if you sat down to make an email program and you, just for whatever reasons, decided, I'm not going to prematurely optimize everything. I'm just going to put every email into its own file. <laughs> Later, I can optimize to try to make it fast. And there, were, there yes. are a lot of email programs that did this. A lot of email clients did exactly this, Unix. And, and that means that to show the inbox means you have to open every one of these files and yeah. parse them and find all the, the headers and then you can show the inbox. Wow. And that, that may be, I mean, and people will have 1,000, 2,000 things in their inbox, at yep. least. And, and that's going to be slow to open 1,000 individual files. And you probably never should have built it that way. And, 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 and you, you, you know, that's just, that's something where premature optimization would not have been premature. On the other hand, it is certainly true that there's whole categories of optimizations that you shouldn't bother making until you actually know that they're going to cause you to be slow. And that they are actually your problem. I mean, there's some things that you can foresee and some things that you just can't foresee. No, I agree. I think I would characterize this as try not to do anything too dumb, <laughs> like up front. Because it's those dumb decisions that in retrospect, like, man, that was dumb. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, there's stuff that's borderline. It's like, okay, we, do, we could do it this way. We could do it this way. As long as it's not a way that's going to be the dumb way later. <laughs> right. I, I really think that's important because you can kind of optimize stuff later. But I think you're right. If you, if you come to the fork in the road and you, you make a left turn at Albuquerque. Yeah. <laughs> Then you're kind of screwed. So give me an example so, where you um, where you thought you were optimizing something and you weren't. Do you have an example from your career? Oh, th- this happens all the time. Really? Like, well, I, I wrote the Schlemiel the painter post, right? That was uh-huh. about that. Like, I thought I was all clear. Wait, I wrote because, that. Well, you wrote that, but uh-huh. then I took it because I was trying to figure out if lots of small string concatenations are as slow. I'm docking as, your salary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I spent all this time, like I optimized, like we're we're because we spend all the time dealing with strings. That's how websites work. Right. right and the, right. for example, the the user block, like the user signature block, mm-hmm. that's called that could be called a hundred times per page. Oh, right? I see. Uh-huh. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think a hundred times per page, right? Uh, times number of pages that we serve up. But after I ended up optimizing, and I did optimize it, it actually got quite a bit faster. But then I realized that it didn't matter because. <laughs> The total time saved from my optimization was like three seconds per day, four seconds per day. Yeah, you know. So that's just a that's almost a failed optimization, not really a negative one. Oh, where I made it worse. Yeah. Oh, you want to? You want? You want? Oh, that's true. That's not truly a pessimization. Where you go to optimize, you actually destroyed something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I don't know if I've actually done that. Usually, can, I'm careful enough. I think I ha- I think I have an example. Uh, go ahead. Um, I actually wrote a uh, b- back in the day. Be- Back in the days before you could get application servers, before you could actually even get like programming languages for the web, um, you know there was CGI and nothing else, and web servers were really slow. So this is like 1994, 1995, and I was working at MTV, and they needed, you know, we needed basically a way to go out to the database really fast, get data, format in a page, and I came up with a dinky little language. It was called Tintin, because um, at the time that was my favorite comic book, and uh, uh, Tintin was basically a, it was kind of like a markup language. It wasn't a really full-featured programming language, but it lets you say, you know, open this table, get this record, and put it in this template and display it in HTML mode. And it had a bunch of cute little features. And I knew that the lexing and the parsing is the slowest part of compiling. And so 
I, what I actually did is I wrote a, um, a, a, a sort of a cache, cached format where um, I did the lexing. The, the first time you went to a given page, it would do all the lexing and parsing, and it would sort of generate this, this data structure, which it would then vomit out onto disk as a binary blob. And then the next time you went to that page, it would just load that binary blob, and everything would be lexed and parsed, and it could execute it really fast. And, of course, that was the theory. <laughs> In reality, the binary blobs were even larger than the original files. And so, <laughs> and it turns out the lexing and the parsing wasn't that slow. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so this actually made it slower. When, when, I, when I actually did, I spent a long time working on that architecture. And then I did some benchmarks. And it, not only was it not faster, but because it had to do more disk I.O., it was actually slower. That is, I think, that's a great story, by the way, and I have not heard that one. Um, that's what saves me. When I start yeah. doing this, quote, air quote, pessimiz- or optimization, the thing that saves me from turning it into pessimization is I usually benchmark early enough right. before I even try yeah. to see, okay, is this really going to work? Like when I did that um, code block optimization for the user block, I actually had a little console app where I said, okay, let me take the string, and I'll just see a couple different approaches and actually see if this is going to work. Um, mm-hmm. And so... To me, that that's what maybe that's where optimization becomes pessimization. Is if you're not actually measuring, you get in trouble because it's shocking. It is deeply shocking to me how often you'll think I'm making this so much better, and you're not either not making it better or making it worse. Mm-hmm. It's just disturbing how often that happens to me. You would think after a certain age as a programmer, you can sort of intuit what makes things fast and slow, but you really can't. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's all about measurement. So measurements take measurements or you're going to pessimize i actually and I, I i did and the only reason i did the benchmarking is because i wanted to see how much better i had made everything i was so pleased with myself you gotta front load the benchmarking you gotta front load that <laughs> i should yeah. probably do some benchmarking with these ssd drives before i put them in too right i think well I, you are i'm gonna you're do buying some, three of them you're gonna yeah. try them out well i gotta do some measuring before i put them in so what i'm gonna i'm gonna benchmark um uh the time to boot windows uh, on my laptop, I'm going to benchmark the time to hibernate and come out of hibernation mm-hmm. and the time to launch, you know, like I'll, I'll pick like six apps and just launch them all at the same time, like Firefox, Outlook, like apps that I use regularly. And then, of course, we'll benchmark uh, the Fogbugs compilation time. That's the main point of these things. Right. Uh, those are all things that I expect because of all the th- things that I read on the web should, should be faster. But Yeah, let us know. Do a blog post about that for sure. Oh, sorry. Not a blog. Write an essay about that. 140 characters on Twitter.com slash Spolsky. Speaking of user blocks, uh, I kind of have a stupid idea. Maybe this is a stupid idea. I don't know. Um, Somebody um, somebody emailed us about 18 times. They wouldn't send us an audio question, but they kept emailing us to claim that we had destroyed their their beloved New Zealand.net developers forum because all the people left and came to Stack Overflow, which was, I guess, better than the .net developers forum for New Zealand. Wait, 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 wait. I yeah. blame Australia. I blame Australia. Yeah, well, no, it's obviously Australia is, is just, um, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? They sabotaged it. A problem. It <laughs> Clearly. Yes. But, um, but, but being a New Zealander and all, I thought it would be nice if, uh, at least on Stack Overflow, um, you had the ability to choose a little flag that goes next to your name. Like if you're from New Zealand, you can check a little box. And then whenever your name shows up, you got a little tiny New Zealand flag next to your name. And if you click on that, it gives you the user's page, but it's filtered by people in New Zealand. It's an interesting idea. I've actually had a request that was sort of related to that. I'm not against it. I think it has to be opt-in because not everybody wants to show where they're from. No, of course not. Yeah. And they may, may, you know, for people that are just in you know, the United States, that wouldn't be that interesting. Right. No, it's a good idea. Uh, where did I see that? I think airliners.net has that exact feature, if I'm not mistaken. Or it may have, it may have 
Hold on, I'm looking. I'm looking on airliners.net aviation forum. Because I, I kept seeing like little... Yeah, yeah, avi, airliners.net does that, which is interesting because it's an extremely international community. And every, every user, pretty much the only thing they have next to their name is what country they're from. Uh, and it's really neat because if you're reading about, you know, like right now I'm reading this article about, I'm reading a discussion about the jewels of the Caribbean. So um, there's people posting from Trinidad and Tobago, from Barbados. I'm not going to pronounce any of these little islands correctly. This guy's in Chile. There's not even any Americans on this thread. Um, anyway, feature request there for you. Anything else we have uh, this week? Any announcements? Any other? Um, no. Anything it's you been another really busy week, so not too much to announce. But probably by next week there will be. There will be some, some new features coming in. Hopefully. Yeah. Be cool. Yeah, I'll have some of those mock-ups for you in the next couple of days. Cool. Looking and, forward to it. Um, okay, so at the end of the call, let's see, we have some announcements here. If you have any questions for us or anything you'd like us to play on the call, what you can do is either uh, record a, uh, what's it called, MP3 file or Og Vorbis. Keep it under 90 seconds, please. And uh, email that to podcast at stackoverflow.com or, or you can call our hotline at 646 646- 826-3879. Do me a favor. When you call or record your thingamajiggy, please spell your name so that we can write it correctly in the show notes or you know, tell us if you don't want to identify you. But uh, just do that at the beginning of the call, and we'll edit it out before we play it. Um, we also have a transcript wiki, which is a place uh, that you can write down. Uh, basically, uh, the listeners all over the world to this podcast um, go there and uh, transcribe part of the podcast, all or part, or anything interesting that they heard um, for the benefit of the hearing impaired and also so that search engines can find it later. And that's uh, the, that will be linked to from the show notes, but it's located at stackoverflow.fogbugs.com. Uh, has all the wikis. Anything else? No, I think that's it. All right. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.